0: Well, there's another kind of interesting piece that came across the wire that I found really fascinating. You see, I, I can remember various technologies coming and going. How many of you guys remember the A-Track? You know, like, that, that's not around anymore. It's like, it's kind of come and gone. Then you've had, I don't know, how many remember beta? Anybody remember beta? You know, it's like, should have should have won but didn't win. And uh, <coughs> now, we have, now we have DVDs. And, and, oh, yeah, do you remember DVDs, those things that we used to use? But it's like, technology moves forward. And so I find it fascinating that certain technologies vanished, we thought was always going to be there, like the 10 key. Like, students always use the 10 key to text and everything else. And nowadays, you, you don't use any of that. You use your smartphone, and it's got its own its own keyboard and all these kind of pieces, and so that's gone. I personally think one of the things that's going to pass by us soon is this thing called emojis. Everybody know what emojis are, right? I mean, they're these fascinating, interesting little... Icons that are supposed to actually express um, um, emotions and various things. They're, you know, like happy or whatever. And what they're discovering is the shapes of these emojis and the shapes we put on the screen are not enhancing communication. It's making it worse. Uh, people are miscommunicating and misrepresenting their emotions through emojis and people are like, you know, I, I don't know how many of you have received an emoji and it's suddenly like a blushing happy face and you're like, Is that embarrassment? Is that happiness? Is that I'm confused? How should I read this? Are you being sarcastic with... How do you be sarcastic with an emoji? I don't know. Anyway, the emojis are really interesting. But shapes kind of teach things. Shapes become symbolic. And as you present shapes, people think different things. And that's why emojis aren't working like we think they should. Because they say sometimes the things we don't want them to to say. For example, when I, when I hold this one up, what do you guys think? You think? You can say it out loud, whatever comes to your mind. Happy. First service, somebody yelled Walmart. <laughs> okay, that'd be true, right? It's Walmart, okay, there we go. Or how about this one? Question mark. Question? It's actually your help symbol for your, in your computers. The help symbol, at least in PCs. And that's the kind of the circle with the question mark is the help symbol. How about this one? Okay, there you go. Greg's office. Triangle. Bathroom, I hear. That's right. I thought I had, you know, it's kind of, you have, and this also in the ancient world, this could have been, somebody would have yelled Pythagoras. Other people would have yelled, oh, no, actually, it's uh, the Trinity. The triangle has been used in so many ways throughout the centuries. It's my favorite symbol. I use it a lot in all kinds of things. So, while we can mess up with all those. Here's two you can't get wrong. You ready? That's right. Oh, and this one? No, this is love. This is a heart. They're very, very different things, and this is why I want to talk about this today. I want to, I want to describe why, when it comes to our worship as Christians, and when it comes to love, it comes in one shape. It comes in the shape of a cross. And this morning, Jesus is going to kind of lead us in that conversation. Well, yes, this does mean love for, for us in our, in our culture. The cross was intended to mean love. It was intended originally to be the shape by which worship and life was lived through. And so as we dive into this, I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. So grab a Bible, open up to John chapter 13. We're going to continue on in through what we've been looking at in the life of Jesus as he's at this meal. So John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. We'll move forward from there. As you're opening up to that, if you don't have a Bible, page 900 in the Bible's in the seats, you'll be right there with us. And what I want to describe to you guys is what's been going on. Jesus has gathered his disciples, they've sat down at the table, and they've had this Passover meal together. In the middle of the Passover meal, Jesus pauses, gets up, washes their feet as a sign of humility, turns around from there, and then basically announces, hey guys, one of you are going to betray me goes completely silent. Everybody's looking at each other like who is gonna do that? What is going on in this scenario? This is crazy. And and suddenly he hands a piece of bread to Judas, says tells Judas, you know, what you gotta do, do it quickly. Judas gets up and leaves. And this is the picture. As they're leaving, there's utter confusion at this table. And now Jesus is going to change the subject again. It's almost like whiplash. One speed, then another, then back to the other. And so we pick up with verse 31. When he had gone, speaking of Judas, gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And so we'll just stop there, because Jesus begins in the next whiplash moment, he turns around and he starts talking about glorifying, all this glory and conversation. If you would you look at it, you could underline glorify, and you're going to do it like six times, because there's a past tense, there's a present tense, there's a future tense, glorify, 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 what is going on? And so Jesus is basically getting into a conversation about how he is going to glorify the Father and the cross, and the cross, the Father is going to be glorified, and Jesus is going to be glorified by the Father glorifying himself. And so there's this, all this talk about glorifying. Now, the problem is, we don't use that term glory very often anymore, do we? And if you stop and think about it, you don't go to work and you sit down and go, man, that way you photocopied just brought so much glory to our company. You know that 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 sales presentation you glorified the country the company so you don't, we just don't use that term. Glory and glorification actually glorified or glory is the only term that even gets close and we use that in sports. When somebody is glorious, when something glorious has occurred, oh, to see the glory, that is always termed in sports. In fact, they had a show that was called, I don't know if it's still on, but Beyond the Glory, where you'd examine the life of of a famous athlete and dive into their background and see what really made them tick. And so this concept of glory, to me, is best seen in a sporting event, where you really see the spectacular, where you really see the weighty, as the Old Testament would call it, the the, the heaviness, the glory, or where you really see the, the, the change that's occurred. A good example of this used to be the Lakers, right? I mean, the Lakers, when they were on their game, they were a dynasty. You couldn't stop them. You had to deal with them. They would make some amazing, glorious plays from the, you know, at the end of the NBA Finals with Robert Ory just shooting the three, right? The, and then everybody's screaming wherever I was at that time. But I mean, you've got Shaq breaking boards, you know, all that kind of stuff. Today, you'd say the Patriots would be the glorious team whether you like them or not, in football. And the reality is because these people have a dynasty. You have to deal with them. They're weighty. They're heavy. When you're going to play them, you have to think about it. When you had to play L.A., you knew people were going to be yelling in the stands, Beat L.A. It was the chant. That chant does not happen anymore. And so the, uh, then you move forward to this concept of change. The Patriots have changed the way footballs played. Their, their abilities and their skills and the, the amount of times they played, you have to think through how do they play the game? What are they doing? Um, you know, Phil, Phil was the, uh, I'm losing Phil's name with the head of the Lakers, was, um, was Jackson. There it is, Jackson. And so Phil Jackson changed the way basketball was played by his triangle offense. These are, these are weighty situations that shifting and the spectacular occurs oftentimes with these groups. Things that make people go, whoa, that didn't really happen, did it? Remember Super Bowl, with the guy with the red gloves catching that ball, bounces off somebody else, bounces off another guy, he slips his hand just under the head to replay it 17 times just to show you that he got his hand under the ball and it didn't touch the ground. At that point, the entire momentum shifts in the Super Bowl. This is the kind of stuff that says it's glorious. And God says, you know what? This is glorious. I'm going to make much of me. Jesus steps up and says, Now is the time where I'm going to be made much of, where this glorious, spectacular, weighty thing that must be dealt with is going to occur. It's going to be so big and so huge. God is making himself known and huge in this moment. What moment? Well, it's going to be when I go and you can't follow me, it's going to be at the cross. And at the cross, God lays down such glory that every nation on this planet has had to now deal with the question of the cross. That every, for two thousand years, people have been dealing with the question of what is this that Jesus has done because he rose from the dead. What is this cross about? It's weighty. It's a change. It's glorious. And it's the place that God wants to show himself so that we would worship him. Here's the trouble spot, though. If God's sitting there going, oh, I'm God, and I'm going to make myself wonderful and glorious, doesn't that sound like a little egocentric? I mean, like, who really wants to worship a God that's all about himself? Like, let's check me out. Everybody has to worship me. And yet, time out for a second, because if a human's doing that, it seems vain and wrong. And yet, if you take God, and he is really glorious, then he ought to be worshipped. Here's the thing. None of us get to claim we we should be worshipped because none of us are worthy of worship. And we all wish we were, but none of us really are. We're all fallen. We're all broken. We're not worthy to be worshipped. And yet God is worthy to be worshipped. And if he worshipped anything else, think about it, that thing that he worshipped would be God. So the only being that God can worship is himself. Now that still sounds like egocentric, except for the fact that you stop and think about the fact that he's a trinity. In Christianity you won't have one God just talking about himself. We have a God who is one God who is three persons. A Father, a Son, and Holy Spirit. That these three have always eternally been God. And what happens is they love to glorify each other. Notice the text again as it gets into it. Let's look at 31. He says, see the Trinity in there. Now is the Son of Man, which is speaking of Jesus, glorified, made, made much of, made heavy, made weighty, made famous. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And so he's saying... I'm going to glorify God, God's going to glorify me, and God's going to glorify himself in me so that there's this glory that's constantly flowing. The Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father, the Holy Spirit is occurring in here as they're glorifying each other, we're lifting each other up. They're giving themselves away to each other in worship. This isn't egocentric. This is selfless. Constantly pouring themselves out, enjoying each other. And so God's not up there as an egocentric person. Instead, he's saying, my essence is community. My essence is self-giving. My essence is love. And we see that at the cross. Because at the cross, where God's glory is shown off, God doesn't just sit there and go, check me out. I'm amazing. I can hang on a cross. No. It was the most humbling, ugly, horrific display that humans could do to each other. And God says, you want to know what I'm like in his glory, he hung on a cross to die and pay for the sins of his enemies. Not for everybody who was good and perfect and loved God. No, no, it's for everybody who was sinful and wasn't looking for him and didn't think they could have a relationship with him and didn't think that God cared. He came, and he bore their sins for them. He died on a cross to carry their evil and their pain and punishment, that they would be saved. That's amazing. That in his shining forth of how awesome he is, it's for others that he's caring. I mean, we love that kind of stuff. We go flock to the movies like Hacksaw Ridge, where this guy's going to basically give away his life to save everybody he can, including even sometimes the enemies, where he throws them on a stretcher and lowers them down. It didn't matter to him. He was out to save lives. And all that man was doing was imaging Christ. And what we have here is the perfect picture of who God is. Here at the cross, God shows himself off. He shows off his glory. It's called his Shekinah glory. It was the shiningness that would come down on the top of Mount Sinai. It was a shiningness that showed up in the middle of the the tabernacle, in the temple. It revealed his glory. It was beautiful. It was spectacular. And God says, you want to see my glory? Look at the cross, because that's where he's going to be glorified, We're going to see him clearly. And they're at the cross. you have God who is willing to bear sins for other people. Jesus, who is God on earth, is willing to take their sins. That shows mercy. And yet it shows justice. Because God's not going to let evil just get away with it. There is no terrorist act. There is no wrong governmental move. There is no illegal fee, no amount of um, corruption, no amount of any kind of sin that occurs within your home, no amount of stealing, no lie, no cheating, no lust, no evil will survive past the eyes of God. He will deal with every bit, grand or small. And he shows us how serious he is in that the father is willing to bring that wrath on his son and the son is willing to receive that wrath to deal with sin because it's so wrong the good God must act. And he does by bearing it on himself. And in that you see his goodness, you see his justice, you see his wrath, and yet the flip you see his love because he was willing to do it for us He loved us by burying our sin. He loved us by taking it from us, not so that we go through a bunch of things to get right. No, he takes it if we're willing to give it to him and he takes it away from us and gives us everything that we need. There's his grace. He's willing to pour out all the goodness we need to have a relationship with God. All this happens at the cross when he glorifies himself, when he shines forth who he is. And so it's the cross that becomes a symbol of love. It's a cross that becomes a symbol of good. A cross must be a symbol that calls us to want to worship. And I get it. Some of us are like, wait, 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 Greg. In a world, this is a in a world of coexist bumper sticker. I mean, aren't there all kinds of ways to worship God? I mean, let's be honest. There, are these the, the, the Buddhist is very sincere in his worship, and so is so is the Hindu. I mean, so is the Muslim. So is the Jewish, the Jewish man or woman. And and so here we have all of these other religions. You're trying to tell me only through the cross? It's the only shape that we can have actual worship in. And that's. And I'm saying, yeah. You say, wait, wait. That that just seems so narrow. It does seem narrow. Here, here's what's interesting as you examine the different religions, a lot of people want to claim, oh, look how similar they are. You look at their, some of their moral teachings, they kind of semi line up here and there. But to be quite honest, they're very different at their cores. While the peripheries have some similarities, at the core of Buddhism, there actually is no God, they don't believe in a God. They believe in the dharmas and the dharmas are, are forces that unite and keep all of all of reality together and you want to release yourself into the dharma called nirvana which is one of the dharmas in order to achieve enlightenment enlightenment actually is not something you can know you achieve because you cease knowing yourself. And it's an, it's an expression of yourself vanishing into the reality of the world where suffering and everything is gone. And How can you say that we're worshiping God? Now, us Americans, we like to attach Buddhist ideas to worshiping God, but Buddhism in and of itself doesn't allow that. You can believe in a God, but you've got to ultimately realize that God doesn't exist. It's about the dharmas to be enlightened. Hinduism has a similar thing. They have billion, actually millions of gods, I think it's roughly 13 million gods. And if you boil them all down, they come down to one essence that they claim is God. But this God is impersonal. You don't know it. It doesn't know you. It doesn't care. There's no love in the impersonal God of Brahman. It just is. It's just isness, just nothingness of it's, it's a very, and in fact, it's a yin yang interesting reality which there's no personality, no knowledge. At the same time, we go to Islam, and Islam that loves Allah and longs for Allah cannot know Allah because he's too holy. He's in the heavens. He's unknowable. You can't approach him. You can only do the things he's told you to do in hopes that he will accept them. And with the God of, of Judaism, oftentimes the, it is about doing good, and how much good you do will be weighed in the end, and it's an attempt to, to do good to people, and that's beautiful, question that has been laid oftentimes is now what do we do about sin they say just do more good and here's the thing all of these are are very powerful and the largest religions in the world after christianity why are they wrong well what's up with that why can't they be worshiping god as it pointed out so there's some major differences two groups actually aren't looking to worship god but the fundamental difference is that in all of them if you boil them down if you look at them and you and you kind of look at them and examine all four of these great religions and many, many others all claim the same thing. They say, this is what you must do to achieve spiritual enlightenment or God's pleasure. And so you could literally spell all of them as D-O, do. This is what you must do. And yet Christianity is the flip of this. Christianity at the cross says this is what God has done. He has paid for your sins. He has done everything necessary to be right with God and he gives it to you freely. It is yours if you will just simply receive it. It's an, and then from there, you live in a way that honors him, and that's called worship. That's why worship is found in the shape of a cross. Worship is a, re, a response to what Jesus has done on the cross, not something we achieve or run and try to grab. No, he has done it for us, it is done. And the other thing to this is that as Americans, there's a little difference because we really do want to kind of pick and choose out of all the religions and enjoy pieces of them to feel like that's how I worship God. And and again, I have an illustration for you that I think will help show you kind of how that works. My family, I don't know if you have this problem, but I have a dad and he's, uh, he's retired. He makes plenty of money in retirement and he only likes a few things. You know, he kind of hangs out in his house, watches some politics and some movies and stuff. And so when Christmas time comes around or his birthday comes around, It's really hard to figure out what you get him. Anybody been there before? Like you're sitting there going, why would I buy that for him? He could buy that for himself. He probably already has. You know, he could get that book on his Kindle. And, and now with technology at his fingertips, he can get whatever he wants that he enjoys right there on his iPad. I'm sort of like, well, what do I do? So me and my sisters, we sit around. We're just like, what, do you, what, do you, what did dad tell you? Nothing. Why did he tell me? I don't know. Nothing. There's nothing. We, what do we do? So we're like kind of trying to figure out. And ultimately, what we eventually do is we all get him a gift card. And we're like, hey, here's a gift card. More money for you to buy whatever you want for yourself because you don't have enough. And he's just like, oh, thanks. Throws it on top of the pile of money. You know, kind of reality. The stress of this is what's interesting is that when you talk to my dad and you really hear what he says, he says, listen, this is what I want. I want, you, I want to go out to lunch with you and I just want to hang out. And I'm like, but the kids want to get you something shiny, And so what do we do? We go, that's nice, Dad. Yeah, we'll hang out sometime. And we go scouring around and find something shiny to put it in a box, to put it under the tree so we feel good. Then my dad got a gift. Yay! And all the kids feel good. Yay! And my dad opens the gift, and invariably most of these things wind up on a shelf somewhere unopened. Because what he wanted was he wanted to spend time with me. It's not what we wanted to do. God has told us what he has asked. He says he wants us to trust him that he's paid for it all. Stop trying to get him all the gifts. He's completely secure. He has everything he needs. He doesn't need a starship from us. He doesn't need anything from us. He needs nothing. He wants us to have a relationship with him. And so he's given us everything. He's cleaned up everything. All the doing is done. And now he's ready that if we would receive his doing for us, we could have that relationship. And that's why worship comes in the shape of a cross. Everything else is doing, but he didn't ask for that. He asked for our relationship, and he paid for everything it was, that requires that to occur. And that's the vast difference. And that's why worship is the life that comes out of the cross, not something we strive to make. And that life of worship is not just music it is music, right, Mark? We've got, we've got to have some singing. That's part of what we do. And the reason we raise our hands is a sign of surrender to God. It's the same reason they bowed their knees. We pray. This is all part of worship. But it's not only worship. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is a response to the work of the cross. And it comes out in one shape, the shape of love. And that love shape is a cross. And let me show you how this goes. So Jesus just expressed that all this glory is going to happen at the cross. And then he dives into this. Verse 34, a new commandment I give you. So he's speaking to the disciples. He says that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so Jesus begins. He says, look, you to love the church. You're to love each other in the church. This is about loving one another, the church. As Christ loved us, how did Christ love us? By dying on the cross and giving his life for us. So we ought to be the kind of people who are running after loving each other in the same way. And it is by that the church will be known. Notice what Jesus says again in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Hmm. How is the church really known though? If you stop and think about it for a minute. If you were to say church and I was to hold a symbol of a church up, what would people think? Here's what's fascinating. I I guess a good illustration of this is is my son Andrew. Yesterday we were doing charades at my dinner table, just kind of a random family night. And so we wound up like looking around. We're like, okay, because the kids need some kind of prompts. And so my daughter brings down this, somebody had given us Bible taboo. Yes, I'm the pastor. We have Bible taboo at my house. So we we open up and I'm opening the hand of the cards out. And so they all need cards to do their thing and do their little charade thing. Well, Andrew's too young. He He can't read. the card. And so he gets to kind of, he knows we're talking about, okay, make sure that this is church stuff because it's, it's Bible taboo, right? So it's Bible charades. Come up with something from the church that you can think of, Andrew, and, and give us a word. So he's like, so he gets up there. He gets to go first. And he's like, I got one. I got one. We're like, okay. He gets over there. He's like, and we're like, preaching. He's like, no, no, no. And we're like, okay, eating, food? He's like, no, no. We just, all over the place. And we're like, okay, Drew, we give up. What is it? He's like, money. I'm asking for money. Anybody else feel like that's what the church is all about out there? Turn on TV and you're watching and you're going, all they want your Money. That's what Andrew seems to think, even though he's never seen some of those shows in his life. But the reality is that's for some of us. I thought we thought it was funny. So uh, we're just like, oh, pastor's kid. So uh, the reality is, though, while we may be raising a televangelist, many people think that it's all about money. That's what they think from the church. You know what other people think? They think they, they can tell you what we're against far faster than they can tell you what we're for. Because the way that we stand, the way that we act on the internet, or the way that we treat people, even in our churches sometimes, is far more about what we believe and how we act. But he didn't say you; they will know you by what you believe. They said they will know you by your love that will look like the cross, which represents your beliefs. Oh, it's about what we believe, but it's about how we live them out. And, and so the cross was supposed to represent love. But let's be honest, this cross has oftentimes represented a crusade against other religions. This cross is often represented sitting in front of pulpits, a holier-than-thou attitude in which the finger was being pointed and driven down at people. But Jesus never intended the cross to represent any of those things. He intended the shape of the cross to be the representation of a cross kind of sacrificial love. A love that is not like the heart love. The heart love, I'm going to call a weak love. It's an emotional love that honestly can run hot or cold and can dry out. It's the kind of love that if you find it in a marriage when they fall out of love, you will not find the marriage anymore. It's the kind of emotional love that we use when we say, I love pizza and I love my kids. Now, if you're saying in those two terms, you've got the wrong kind of love because our heart love is very different with our kids. It is far more across love. See, cross love is easily defined, and it it shows. Again, um, John, in his commentaries on his own book, he's saying that, hey, we know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. How do you know you're a Christian? You love the church. That's the definition of it. But second, then he goes on, by this you know what love is. This is we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Did you see the cross? And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, think about that for a minute. Our love for each other is not supposed to be an emotional love. But this section needs to be willing to lay down their lives for this section and vice versa and all around. Now we should have such a connection to one another, a brotherly love that we're willing to die for each other. That we're willing to bear up each other in the midst of danger and stand firm. That's a that's a different kind of love. That's the love that Jesus displayed on the cross. Where he didn't run from the cross, he went to the cross to save us. At the same time, we don't run from danger, we go to it. You see, the thing is, we live in a culture that says safety above all else. I'm sorry, we don't get to be safe. Because you and I get safety in eternity, we don't get safety today. Jesus has secured your safety in eternity. He has secured you away from wrath. He has secured you away from any health dangers, from any death, from anything else. But you don't get that with the cross kind of love today. I'll give you an example of what I mean. How many of you were able to go see the movie Pursuing or Um sorry, a Facing Darkness? It came out for a one day in the theaters. So it was a pretty rare, awesome movie about Samaritan's Purse and another group out there called Doctors Without Borders. Do you guys remember the Ebola crisis that occurred only a few years ago in Liberia and in West Africa? It had grown in the cities, it had begun to expand in the cities, and in fact, it was in major, a major city in Liberia. Samaritan's Purse was located there already, and so was Doctors Without Borders. And they had seen this Ebola beginning to break out, and they were trying to get attention. But nobody was listening. In fact, all the other organizations kind of left except for Samaritan's Purse and Doctors Without Borders who took up the cause, cleaned up their own facilities and turned them into medical institutions where they brought sick people in to care for them. They didn't run. They went to them. Though there was entire groups of people claiming they were the ones giving Ebola to people. They were getting yelled at, beat up, all kinds of things. They were willing to stay and continue. And and nobody was listening. They were yelling for international attention, trying to get the World Health Organization to even notice the problem of Ebola. And nobody, no country was acting. Until finally, two of Samaritan Purse's own people, one a doctor and one a nurse, wound up contracting Ebola themselves. In the midst of this, as he's dying, Samaritan's Purse manages finally to get the attention of government workers in, in, in Washington, D.C., and they, start, they find this virus that's been, or this, um, this vial of stuff that's been made to fight Ebola, and it's experimental, never been used on humans ever. They take it, and the guy's willing to let it be injected because he was hoping that perhaps if it saves him, it could save other people. That's the kind of love we're talking about. The kind of love that was willing to give his life away, though, he didn't know any of these people, it didn't matter what churches they went to. but they needed somebody to stand in the gap. They both wound up being spokespeople throughout the United States for this crisis, and that crisis has passed, predominantly because of those work, the work of Samaritans Purse and Doctors Without Borders, because they ran to the crisis the understood cross kind of love. And the cross kind of love doesn't run from the marriage when it's falling apart. It presses in. The cross kind of love doesn't, doesn't run away from the, the mission field because it's hard. It presses in. The cross kind of love doesn't ignore their neighbor when they're in the middle of a horrific situation, but they step into the fear and step into the danger because there is no safety on this side. There's safety abundantly in eternity. And so we have this reality, we need to be able to lay down our lives for one another. For each other as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, he goes on to say, here's a simple illustration. If anyone has the world's goods, so if you've got money and you've got stuff, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If we've got some way to sustain and help somebody else's need, and we go, nah, I'm not going to help. How does God's love abide in us? And yet on the flip side here in Olive Branch, what I want to challenge is some of you guys are in a situation of need and you're not willing to say you need anything. In fact, the first response often of an American in need is to say, nah, I got this, we'll figure it out. And by the time they don't, it's a crisis. And by the time it's a crisis, it's almost impossible to fix. Because if we'd asked for help at the beginning and we were willing to aid and make make the difference, it could have kept any crisis from occurring. The same thing is true spiritually. So hear me. If, if this is the first time you've ever heard the cro- what Jesus did at the cross, you may think you can deal with your sin. You may think, hey, I've got enough years ahead of me. I can do enough good. I can do enough things. I'll overcome that addiction. I'll overcome that disease. I'll overcome that thing in my heart. And I'm just telling you, no one has lived long enough to do that. No one will live long enough to do that because you were supposed to be good your entire life. And doing a good thing that was expected of you doesn't cover over the bad thing that we did. And learning from it doesn't change anything. Great, we learn from it. How do we deal with what we did? So there's this entire struggle and reality. We're not safe on this side of earth. And unless we're willing right now to cry out for need, even though you haven't hit the crisis of your life, God is still willing to provide you everything that you need. So don't wait until the crisis. If you know you need Christ, receive Him now. Don't wait. He is there giving it away. That's the picture we as the church are supposed to be doing functionally with each other, helping each other in our needs. Pouring out from our bounty to help those who have little. In fact, that's why we serve each other. We don't just serve for whatever, but you're all gifted. God has laid inside of you each a gift. Some of you are administrators, some of you are leaders, some of you are teachers, others of you. You are literally just amazing servants and prayer warriors, but we're just not engaged. And we're just letting it go. But even if you were engaged and you weren't an amazing at this thing, but you didn't do it without, with love, here's a Paul says, he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and understand, or sorry, if I have prophetic powers, that's how you have to say that, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to even move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body up to be burned but don't have love, I gain nothing. And the point is that this kind of cross love, this caring for the other, to lift them up, even though we may dislike them, even though they may disagree with us, even though they may have harmed us, we lift them up in care. That kind of cross love is why we serve. Not to get glory, not to look cool, not to be like, check out my ministry. No, 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 no. It's about caring and and helping other people in need. It is about love. And this kind of love also means that we tell the truth to each other. We're willing to point out to each other when we're wrong so that we can grow. We have accountability. It is a love that is, that is what we would do with our children. You don't play in the street. Why, mommy? Because there's dangerous cars that come on the street. We don't play out there. You play on the sidewalk. We tell truth to our kids when they're being bullies or whatever. We, we want them to grow up to be better people. The same thing is true for each other. We want each other to grow up to be like Jesus Christ that's love that's 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 all this cross love it's so much thicker but isn't doesn't mean if we just care about each other just the world is never going to know about Jesus I mean if we're all we're all we're doing is loving on each other no actually the more we love on each other the more there is that flows out from the church in love You see, as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loved each other, it got so expressive and excited, they, they created the world in us from their love, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Holy Spirit. When we care about each other, when that love is generating within each other and we're meeting each other's needs, it comes to the point where we meet our neighbors and we go, we can meet their needs. It comes to the point where we meet other people and we go, we can meet their needs. And it flows out into the city out of love. And then people go, these people love. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. I want to be in that because I need that kind of love. And that's the reality where we are willing to care and share and do everything we can out of love. Now, this can't be done without the cross. You can't have this kind of love on your own. You can't can't have cross love by yourself. Look at Simon Peter, verse 36. He says to them, Lord, Lord where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And he's speaking about heaven as he'll lay out open in, verse, in chapter 14. But then he goes on. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay my life down for you. His declaration is, I can do this. I can lay my life down for you. I can sacrifice myself. I'm faithful. I got this. And Jesus said, oh, really? Will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow, or in other words, the morning's not going to come until you've denied me three times. And what Peter is is a warning to us who think we can do this in our own human endeavor, forgetting that it's not us who laid down our life for Christ. It was Christ who laid his life down for us to love us and to save us. Because here's the thing. What's going to motivate us to go give our lives away if you're not guaranteed, your eternity is set with safety, is set with abundance, is set with all the health that you need. If you don't believe that your eternity is set in that manner, why would we give away our lives now? No, no, if you're just guessing you're going to get to go to heaven because that's what you're told and you don't have any guarantee or any reason why you couldn't argue with yourself this is why because I've done more good things than bad things. Well, who said that? If you can't really ground your argument, you have no hope of heaven. You have no hope of safety. You have a guess, and that's okay. You can have your guess. But a guess is not strong enough to make you live an unsafe life on earth. It is not strong enough to enable you to have the, the tensile strength to die on somebody else's behalf. Instead, you need to eat as good as you can, exercise as often as possible, make sure your doctor, you've seen your doctor, get your brain right, get your health right, and try to live as long as possible, make as many laws as you can to keep people from killing you, because that's as long as you've gotten safety. And I hate putting it that way, but that's the reality. If you do not have a guarantee of safety in eternity, you do not have a guarantee of any safety on earth. And we won't live a sacrificial life otherwise. And so we can't do it in our own power. Peter couldn't do it in his own power. We must do it from the power that is given to us from the cross. And praise God, that power abides with us by his Holy Spirit. And so we can be a people who love like this. And so I want to encourage you. What my hope and what my dream is, is that we'd be a people who we love because he first loved us. And we become a people that when you see the olive branch symbol in town, it's not some weird thing that looks like a bank symbol, which it does, but, uh, that, but that it is a symbol that begins to mean in and of itself, that shape means love. Because you guys have loved each other. And because we have loved those, our, our neighbors, and we have loved our God. And we have lived for him. And we share that message with others. As this is the essence of what we do and be. We love in the shape of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we, we wouldn't understand a love like this. Perhaps with our children we would. But not for strangers and enemies. And God, not for those of... Um, different bins and sins and colors and ethnicities. We, we wouldn't understand how to love like that if it hadn't been for you loving us first. You know, thank you so much that you give us an example of that kind of love so that we have this chance to share that love with others. God, would you just embed in our souls the cross kind of love so that we may glorify you. Help us to know the safety that we have in eternity that we may be dangerous on earth in a good way, that we may live in the danger to love other people. And God, we ask that you would indeed just pare back our fears and help us to live after you because God, they'll know us by your love that lives through us. So thank you for this opportunity. We've had to be reminded of that today. Help us live in it in Jesus' name.